Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 27th, 2017, and this is episode 2052 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Thursday, that means it's a listener call show. This is where you pick your phone up and you mash the numbers 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Or you go to the survivalpodcast.com and click the button on the speak pipe and you leave me a message with the speak pipe. Either way, follow these rules. Number one, ask your dadgone question or make your dadgone point in the first one or two sentences. Two, then give me all the details you feel that I need afterward. That is the number one way to actually get on the air and it's the number one reason people don't get on the air. I'm not being a jerk, but I want to help you help me. So I'm going to tell you something that happens every week. Every week, there's at least one or two calls where 30 to 40 seconds into the call, I still don't know what the call's about. And when that happens, I delete the call. I just want you to know that so you have a better chance of getting on the air. Again, with the high volume of calls, emails, and everything that I do, I have to be able to quickly determine whether or not the call is suitable for the show. And at 30 to 40 seconds, if I don't know what you're calling about, the answer is it's not. Sometimes I only give like 20 seconds. So, hi, Jack, this is so-and-so. My question is, details are, number two, call from a quiet area. There's probably two or three calls a month still where there's tons of background noise. Can't hear you. Get rid of it. And then make sure there's some, there's some uh, signal power on your phone. If you have less than one bar, find a better area before you make your call. Do that, and it's actually pretty easy to get on the air. I would say of the people that do that, nine out of ten calls sooner or later do get on the show. All right, so what calls do we have today? Here's the stuff we're going to talk about today. I said I was done with net neutrality, but I have probably a one-minute answer to this call because it was the best question I could have answered to solve the whole issue from the beginning, so a perfect question to end the net net neutrality discussion on. I have thoughts on the Cutco brand of knives. I actually like the Cutco brand of knives. Patrick Rorman hates them. I'll give you both sides of that story and tell you what I think about them when we take that call. We have a question on protection from predators for your own predator, your outside cat. you got the barn kitty. He's going to go out there and mess up the rats and the mice and do his job, but you're worried something might give him the big old chomp like a coyote or a bobcat. It is possible, and I do have some thoughts on how you can help protect your kitty from the bigger predators. Next up, uh, phone accessories for video and picture taking for blogging, podcasting, etc. I actually have a product I think is pretty cool, and I'll throw it open to the audience for other ideas and suggestions. Keeping deer out of your garden. I've talked about this before, but the guy that, that, that uh, sent the question or called the question in must not have heard it. That means there's probably other people that haven't heard it, but it's a pretty simple solution and it's damn effective. Next up, thoughts on using burned mulch and ashes, etc., for fertilizer for mulch, etc., from a unique vantage. I'll, it, it'll make sense when you hear the call. Thoughts on backup cell phone power in a way that may or may not be a good idea. We'll cover that when we get to it. Uh, how to know when and how often to water your trees. Because the Internet's telling this person, your trees will tell you when they need water. But apparently the Internet doesn't say, this is the tree's language and how to know. I'll talk about that. And helping your children with saving investing when they've saved up that first hundred bucks. Good job, kiddo. And I'll talk about what I think you should do with your kids with saving investing as a whole to wrap up today's show. 
Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheaths, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. I want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vikram Tala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. All right, guys, and as I said, um, the first question's on net neutrality, and I almost deleted it without listening to it. It was like a very, like one of the oldest calls left in the queue. And I'm like, I've covered this, and I've rebutted the rebuttals on this. But then I heard the question and went, wow. What a fantastic question for those that still doubt what I'm saying about net neutrality. So caller, ask your question, please. Hi, uh, my name is Gina, and my question is regarding the effects of net neutrality on your business. Um, there's been a lot of talk lately about doing away with net neutrality. And so how do you feel that a restricted net would affect your business when, for example, people can't access your websites or it's too slow, can download information and so forth? Thank you. The reason that is the perfect question is because when somebody hears something like, you're taking net neutrality away, they don't even think about the fact that it really has only been very weekly and forced for like 18 months. And I do mean weekly because the carriers pretty much fought it. And then when the FCC put the rules in place, said, yeah, we're, we're, we're just going to do what we do anyway because it works. And you guys don't really understand what you're regulating. Yeah. And all of the problems between the big companies have kind of been resolved at that point. And yeah, it just, you know, whatever. So the answer is it won't affect you at all. It won't affect you and it won't affect me. Brian Black over at ITS Tactical, he was big on the pull push for the net neutrality, save the internet day and whatever. He's like, well, what, Jack, what if they start blocking sites like yours and mine? They're not going to block your site, Brian. They're not going to block my site. Uh, I launched this show in 2008 all the way up to 2014 and a half. There was actually 2015 and a half. There was no enforcement at all, even lip service to net neutrality, and you had no problem getting to the survivalpodcast.com. You had no problem downloading the show. They didn't slow down your downloads or any of that stuff. Absolutely nothing happened, and that's the point. And for the next four years, there will be no net neutrality rules in place, 
it ain't going to come back till at least 2021, bare minimum, and nothing is going to happen. When nothing happens, you can stop worrying about shit. Great question. Let's take another one. So your uh, your your expert panel uh, about about knives, kitchen knives. I'm going to speak from experience and something that I personally own, and they're not cheap, but they're not expensive uh, in, in the world of kitchen knives. Anyway, um, Cutco 440A folded steel, American made, high density polymer handles, everything you want in a knife. Lifetime sharpening. Don't try to. Sh I've never tried to sharpen them myself because of that double D cutting edge. Seems a little tricky. I'd probably ruin it if I tried to sharpen it myself. But for all your listeners, man, if you need a good set of knives at a reasonable price, try Cutco. Thanks. All right, I have specifically recommended Cutco knives in the past. Um, I will say at their price point. I think in a lot of ways it makes step, sense to step up to something like a Shun Premier. Um, but I don't have anything against Cutco whatsoever. But let me give you kind of my view of why I make that statement. A, a Cutco um, nine and a quarter inch French chef's knife, which is like their full size French chef's knife, is $156 um, plus $12 shipping because it's not on Prime on, on Amazon. Or you have to find a rep to buy it from, or you can buy it direct, and it'll actually cost a little bit more. Um, a Shun Premier chef's knife, which is a 8-inch uh, chef knife, that's the one that I would consider to be comparable to the 9-inch Cutco. You can step up to a 10-inch if you want. They don't have a 9. Uh, but I think an 8-inch chef's knife is plenty of knife, and actually anything bigger is excessive. Is $179. Um If you add the shipping to the 156, you're at 166, 168 versus 179. You're, you're at about 10 bucks. Uh, the Cutco is a great knife. The Shun is Japanese made. It's a Damascus laminate steel over a VG10 core. It's made with Japanese craftsmanship. It doesn't have that kind of funky blade angle, so it's a little bit easier to sharpen and maintain. It looks looks absolutely outstandingly gorgeous, and it will perform better than the Cutco for ten bucks. What do you not get? You don't get free lifetime sharpening. Pretty much for the cost of shipping it to Cutco, you can get your Cutco knife sharpened, and they do a really good job. So, I just kind of wanted to open with that. I'm about, about to say some really good things about Cutco, but I just like I always want to point out: just because something's good doesn't mean that something's not a lot better for about the same money. In this case. I have become really a big fan of the Shun Premier line of chef's knives. And again, you can get them on Amazon.com. I'll put a link where you can kind of see their whole lineup in the show notes. And Cutco's as well. Because Cutco makes some things that Shun doesn't. And I, I really like some of the things that they, that they have available. I own a Cutco chef's knife. I own a Cutco Santuco. I also own a Shun chef and a, a Shun uh, Santuco. I own the Cutco first. I haven't gotten rid of them. I won't be throwing them down on the barter blanket. I like having lots of knives available to me. But if I had owned the shuns first, I probably would have expanded my shuns before I would have gone to a Cutco. Now, what's great about a Cutco? Number one, it is a fantastic steel. Is it as good as a VG10 core wrapped in Damascus? No, no. But it's a damn good steel. 
It's a company with a long history of making a very good product. On my grandmother's uh, kitchen countertop, there was a stove, right? And then the countertop and the sink, and then t that's to your left. And to the right was a thin countertop, you know, kind of like where the stove's almost against the wall, but there's maybe a foot of countertop, a little skinny drawer to the side of it. A lot of kitchens laid out like that. And there was a gap between that skinny countertop and the stove. And right in there, instead of a butcher block, is where she put her knives. And if you looked at those handles, Cutco has a very distinctive handle. All of those knives, all those good knives, had that Cutco handle. I don't know when she got them, but I'm talking the 1970s. I remember them being there. And when I visited my father last, geez, over 10 years ago, um, those knives were still there and still great knives. Okay, so... That is a test, and they get used a lot. I don't know how much my dad used them, but my grandma used them daily. And she would get to a point where they just didn't touch up nice from steel anymore, back to the company they went. You break it, it gets replaced. Right? Um, what I don't like, and, I, and Patrick dislikes the entire concept of Cutco because of this, is their marketing uh, mechanism. Cutco's big on getting young, dumb kids to go out and try to sell their friends and family knives and tell them they're going to get rich doing it. And if you left out to tell them they're going to get rich doing it, I might feel a lot less negative toward it. In the end, though, it's not like they don't pay people. It's not a multi-level marketing pyramid scheme or something like that. They say, hey, this is how you sell our knives. This is your sales pitch. And I think a lot of people that have taken that step and maybe you know washed out of it, they did gain a lot by it. They learned sales skills, they learned prospecting, they learned cold calling. So I think it's a nice stepping stone. I kind of look at it at the sales version of a McDonald's job. You're not going to do it for the rest of your life. It doesn't pay really good. You'll probably be miserable at times while you're doing it. But it's not meant for you to stay there forever. That said, there are people that are actually very successful at it. They work their way up through their marketing, vector marketing or something like that. And they end up in a pretty good place where they end up being the people that do the trade shows and the, the state fairs and the uh, you know appearances at, at like a Costco or something like that. <clears throat> and, you know, I've met people in their 30s and 40s doing that job, and I'm like, so is this something you didn't transition? No, I've been doing this for 20 years. So I have a little bit of a disagreement because what Patrick said is I've never met anybody that sells cut coat knives and said, here's my book of business, I've been doing it 20 years. I've never met anybody that keeps doing it on the door-to-door -door sales type of thing. And I do think there's a little bit of a a hucksterism and a shenanigans going on there. So I'm not a fan of that, but I don't dislike the knife. The other thing Patrick doesn't like is the handle. He says it's not ergonomic, it doesn't feel well, etc. I actually think the handles on a Cutco knife are fantastic. I have zero problem with the handles on a Cutco knife. Um, again, though, to me, I, and I know some people are big on this whole American-made thing, and hey, Patrick makes some of the finest custom knives in the world right here in America. But he'll tell you that his blade crafting skills come from roots in Japan. Japan, a shitty Japanese knife, is better in general, true Japanese-made knife, their lowest quality, is better in general than a mid-tier American-made knife at this point in time in the world because they take it very, very seriously. And I would just personally steer you toward the shun line and... I won't get rid of my Cutco's, but whenever I feel like expanding the cutlery, I'm waiting for Mr. Patrick to produce the freaking new knife, the chef's knife. I'm going to be real happy about that when they're available. But, you know, otherwise, when I'm looking for a product where I can just order it and get what I want today, 
I have yet to find a line of knives that I feel are as high quality for the money as Shun, specifically the Shun Premier line. Now, Shun makes a, some really good knives that are just kind of their, like their, their, their mid-tier, I guess you'd say, that are also a Damascus, though it's not quite as fancy a Damascus with a VG10 core. It doesn't have the hammer peening on it that kind of really makes the Premier line look up. And the handle's nice, but it's not as nice. But the 8-inch chef's knife from the Shun DM Classic um, is $144. It's less than a Cutco. That's a better knife than a Cutco for less money. So I would steer you toward the, the mid-tier, the classic Shun line, before I would send you to Cutco at this point. Uh, though, again, if you had a Cutco knife, I wouldn't put it down. It's a good knife. I just don't think it's as good a knife for you know relatively the same money or less. With that, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Drew in Washington. I'm wondering, how do you protect a farm cat from predators? Um, I live in rural Washington, and we've got uh, bobcats, cougars, um, coyotes, bears, all sorts of things that like to eat small animals. I wanted to get a, an outdoor cat for helping protect from rodents, but I want to make sure he's protected and they can take care of themselves. The first thought was to put a cat door, maybe uh, potentially higher up on the side of the shed, so they can jump up and get in the cat door and be harder for predators to get in. Anyway, I'd love to know your thoughts. Thanks. Well, the overall answer is I, I, I wouldn't worry that much. Um, I, I've never heard of bears generally being something that goes after and eats people's cats. Um, bobcats maybe, but probably not as much as you might think. Cougars, generally cougars don't hang around people's barns. If you got a cougar hanging around your barn, you got a bigger problem than protecting your cat. I think your biggest risk to the domestic cat that's hanging around a farm or a barn is going to be coyotes. And it's a, it's a significant risk. It happens. Um, and talking to some people around here, that coyote that I killed a couple of years ago had killed the neighbor's dog, I think at least one other dog, and from what I saw next door, probably two cats. However, there's different types of cats. And I have a cat that we call our special cat. She's also, in Dorothy's words, the last indoor cat we will ever own. She's special because she's special needs. She's cross-eyed, she's mostly deaf, and she's not very smart. In fact, you know how some people say they're not, she's not the sharpest knife in the drawer? Um, she would be a butter knife that somebody grounded flat. Okay, I mean, she's just dumb. And this is not a cat that belongs outside. This is also a cat that didn't get raised outside. This is why I'm a big fan of getting kittens just about the point that they're weaned and basically keeping them in a barn or a shed or something and trying to time the right time of the year where the cat's not in there suffering from heat or cold because uh, he can't get in or out, and, and giving them a week in there to be homed. And this is exactly what we did with our two cats, Fox and Dana. After about a week, they're using a litter box in there at that point, etc., and just open the door. Food's there, they're pet, they, you know, they're, they like you, they don't want to leave. I mean, stray cats find people all the time, show up, and don't leave. So cats that have had some time to kind of settle in um, tend to do the same thing, and, and even more so. They're homed at that point. In fact, those of you that have cats that are outdoor cats, if you ever have to move, you keep that cat in the house for 24 to 48 hours wherever you go to. When you open the door and let that cat out, that cat now knows that that's where home is, and it's going to come home. It's not going to take off on you if it's an outdoor cat. Um, outdoor cats develop a skill set that indoor cats don't. They are a little bit more on alert. They pay attention to what's going around on them a lot more. 
any animal that begins to express its true predatory nature also begins to comprehend its true prey nature. And it's worried about other things and things going on like that. So, one, I just think cats in general are pretty good at evasion of predators. Um, bobcats and cougars certainly could follow them up a tree. A coyote's not going to. Uh, and they become fairly alert. I do think it makes sense to have places they can access that predators cannot. So a cat door, um, a lot of times you can open, uh, you know, uh, like a garage door where it's, a cat can slide in there, but a larger predator would not be able to, what have you. Certainly some sort of elevated way that's also kind of small that they can get in. Now remember, if the cat can get in it, you could probably expect that a coon would get in, a possum would get in, etc. So whatever you can do to minimize that is probably good. And having areas like that where it's not the end of the world if a possum gets in there and has a chomp on some leftover cat food or something like that, because that kind of stuff happens too. Um, another thing that makes really a lot of sense to me in these scenarios is a good homestead dog or two, livestock guardian dog, etc., that is um, socialized with the cat, so the cat and the dog get along or ignore each other. Either one's totally acceptable. Uh, pretty much Max ignores Dana and Fox, Charlie goes out and greets them, And Dana used to chase them, and after getting her ass waxed a few times between the cat and myself, she pretty much ignores them now and actively avoids Dana. Right? So I want you to think about that, too. Like, I know the dog's not a wild dog or anything. This dog has killed a duck or two. We've had to work with her a lot. She runs after Dana. Dana gives her a blazing to the nose. And, whoa, that's not what I thought. Cats fight differently than dogs. This is why... A 75-pound dog is scary if it's angry with you, and a 75-pound cougar is freaking terrifying. The, 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 there is no doubt which one of them is the more adaptive fighter, the feline over the canine. Generally speaking, canines that kill felines are much larger than said feline. Another thing I think is really beneficial is to, when you're selecting a cat, try to find cats that have some size to their genetics. Take a look at mom and dad if you have the opportunity to, or at least mom. You don't want little petite cats for your outside cats. You want good old-fashioned, big, old American short hairs. That's another thing. Avoid long-haired cats. I know that's not really about the predator issue, but if you want happiness from an outdoor farm cat, you want a standard American short-haired, full-size freaking cat. You don't want a freaking, you know, what do you call it, like a Maine Coon or a Russian Blue or a Turtle, this or you know, or some kind of ocelot-looking thing that's a thousand dollars. Just a good old-fashioned American kitty, and I, I don't think you'll have much trouble. But definitely give them multiple places if you can that they can retreat to, and and that's probably the best thing because what what happens then is cats learn kind of the concept of hey, if I want to be safe, I can go to these spots, so they go there to sleep and all, and that's really when they're going to be most vulnerable. When they're awake and alert, if they see something dangerous, they're going to haul ass, and they're a quick animal. And on a farm, there's generally a lot of other critters that are easier to be preyed upon than a cat. And I guess I'll put it this way. When I was a kid in Pennsylvania, and we go up in the woods sometimes, you'd see feral cats. And I don't mean the way we think of them in town. I'm talking, you know, basic pattern house cats living way out in the middle of the woods, You didn't see feral dogs out there. 
We had feral dogs. There were some packs that ran around kind of on the bottom of the mountain and stuff like that, dug into garbage cans. I'm sure they did some hunting and stuff like that. They occasionally, you know, some population control was done on them. Uh, and, and, and generally not by assholes going out and shooting them just to shoot them. I mean, like, animal control would come in and, and trank them and try to try to rehabilitate them if they couldn't, and then would put them down. Um, when they did cause trouble, they would be shot, and you could understand why someone would do that. Uh, but it wasn't like there people running around hunting. But they, you never saw, like, five wild dogs running around up in the middle of the mountain. But you would find a big black, you know, house cat take off and bolt. There's a lot of critters up there that eat little animals. And uh, they, they tend to survive really well. So I'd worry less than you might think you need to. Most vulnerable when they're sleeping, so give them that hiding place. And then number two, when they're young. So you might want to look out for them a little bit more when they're in that kitten, half-growth, what I call the kitten-cat stage. The kitten-cat stage is when they're not really a kitten anymore, but they're not quite a cat, right? They're in that, that intermediate stage. You know, you might want to be a little bit more on checking up on them, maybe putting them in, in overnight in, into a place with a litter box or whatever, but I really never did. Um, I think cats are a lot more likely to be thrown over by a car uh, than eaten by a predator. They're going to be the last thing out of all the things around that, that the typical predator is able to catch, unless you have a special kitty. And if you have a special kitty, I hate to say it, but you got an inside cat. And that's what Alice is, the special kitty. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Um, I'm thinking about starting a podcast slash blog, and I know you use your phone for a lot of your video and picture. And I wonder if you can recommend a good way to hold your phone so it's easy to take pictures while you're working and, and whatnot. Um, anyway, um, love your show. Thanks. Bye. Well, I noticed you didn't say video. And and honestly, <clears throat> most of the time if I'm just taking still photographs, I just hold my phone in my hand and take the picture. <clears throat> Probably like when I, when I want to really get a good shot. I'm going to be a bit close to it. I want it to be dead steady. I want to really frame it right, something like that. Uh, I just use a tripod or a monopod with, with a cell phone holder. And they make these holders. A lot of different people make them. They're spring-loaded, and they have a screw, so they go right onto a, a tripod adapter. And I don't, you know, I'm not... I'm not a photo nerd or a photography or video nerd, so I don't get big into, like, this is the only tripod. Whatever tripod is the right size. So a monopod or a tripod with a cell phone holder. Now, there's a product made by a company called Da Voice, D-A-V-O-I-C-E. And it's one of these little kind of chinky cell phone holders. And you can buy those for about 6 to $8. But it also comes with a little device, little clicker, that's Bluetooth enabled, that you set your phone in there and you click it and it starts a video or it takes a picture. Yeah, it's like 11 bucks. Now, when I saw this thing, I actually thought it probably won't work or it probably won't be very reliable. So I ordered it, and I, I, I honest to God, when I used it the first time, was like, oh, my God, it works. I can't believe this works. It works perfectly. It works perfectly. Um, and because the holder and the little Bluetooth clicker thing really are not in any way paired together, like it's just, you know, the, the clicker thing's its own man, right? If that, and because those little stretchy things that hold your cell phone on tripods, eventually they do break. You can buy any of them. I found, I'll see if I can find a show notes, but I found one that's like three of them for 15 bucks or something. Uh, but I would, that's what I would use is a tripod 
uh, and uh, a cell phone holder if you're going to be using your phone. And you, I would actually recommend that you get a small tabletop tripod and a full-size tripod. And you, you, know, you might want to get a monopod for walk-around work and stuff like that. They're very, very flexible. You know, the nice thing about a monopod is if you travel somewhere, it, it folds up about a foot long, and it's about an inch in diameter. It goes in a little bag. You throw it in your suitcase, etc. Uh, so it travels a lot better than a tripod. I like a tabletop tripod, though, because if you're doing any kind of tabletop photography, um, it's really nice for that. Or if you're doing some video work where you want to sit behind a desk or something, and talk to your phone, a lot of times instead of using a big uh, tripod with a phone that doesn't really have the, the the true zoom capability of like a DSLR shooting video or a dedicated video camera shooting video, it doesn't quite look as good, you know, if you try to zoom or whatever, um, and you want more of an up-close thing, just setting that thing on a table is is really a good way to go. The nice thing with that little clicker, the Bluetooth clicker, is if you're doing work like that where you're going to be in front of the camera, whether it's video or it's still, you can take that picture. And I don't know anything else for 11 bucks that'll do that. And that could even be like, let's say, and I don't know what your subject's going to be. Let's say it's gardening, and you actually wanted a picture of yourself kind of like bent over like you were gardening. You, you know, you're kind of setting up the shot. You, you could just look through the, the camera, get it set to, okay, I'm going to be right there. You can walk over, and you have that thing hidden in your hand, and while you reach down like you're touching something, click, and it's like having a photographer there working with you. It's also great because it starts and stops your video. And what that will let you do is if you're doing any kind of like discussion, you can start the video and stop the video. And with, I mean, without even buying any expensive editing software, if you're going to be uploading your videos to YouTube, if you shoot four or five videos and you just want to link them together with not much real editing, or in my case, I don't do any editing, but there's videos like I'm going to do in segments. And I do this whether Dorothy's shooting the video for me or I'm using my, my tripod. Um, all you do is upload them private, as private videos so they're not visible. And then you go to youtube.com slash, slash editor when you're logged in. And it's very intuitive. You just add them to the timeline. You can add some transition little fades if you want and click render. And then, you know, you publish that video whenever it's done rendering out. And it doesn't use your computer's power to do the rendering and the editing and stuff like that. And that works out really well as well. I'll put a link to the DaVoice product. And it's, again, it's D-A-V-O-I-C-E. Um, in the in the show notes, it works fantastic. It worked. I mean, again, my I was like, oh my god, it works. I, I really expect. I mean, even though I spent my eleven bucks on it or whatever, I really expected it to not work. And then I expected it to not work, you know, reliably. And it worked very reliably. One thing it doesn't do though, it doesn't give you any real feedback that it's worked. Okay. Um, and you, you know, if you have the phone set up and you're doing a still picture, it, when you use your phone, it makes a sound. So you know you got the shot when you're doing a still with it. When you're doing video, like when you start your video, it doesn't really make a sound, at least not on the iPhone 7, so you don't really know. So one of the things I learned early on is the iPhone 7, I can't speak to any other phones here, Unlike the earlier versions of the iPhone, has the same quality camera lens on the front view and the back view of the phone. So when you're standing in front of your iPhone and you set it so you can see yourself in the phone, it has the same 1080, 60p, or 4K uh, quality video, depending on your settings, or 720, whatever you set it on, it's that for both of them. Older versions, it would revert to like you know 360 or something like that for if you flipped it around. 
for like selfies and whatnot. So what I recommend if you're using that video self-video feature, flip the phone around so you can look and you can see that the timer started. Because that avoids like doing like 10 minutes of video, being really happy with what you did, and then you go to the phone and it, it didn't ever start. Because I've had that happen. Yeah, so like, that's how I know. And I, uh, I, I think if, you'll, if you take that approach with it, I think you'll be really happy with that product. Um, I have been looking for, without spending too much money, a gimbal, which is a device that basically when you're, when you're walking with your phone keeps it more steady and level. And I've found inexpensive ones that are crap and really expensive ones that, um, that, that just seem too expensive for what they do. And then I, I found one that was a really good one. Stephen Harris recommended. I ordered it from the company, and I guess they went out of business or something and never shipped it. So, uh, and it seems like it was a really great product. They did a Kickstarter and all. They delivered on their Kickstarter. Uh, they weren't available on Amazon, but they were available on their main site. And I ordered that thing in November, and I haven't seen it. And I actually had forgotten about it until this question came in. So I'm looking for a good gimbal without spending hundreds of dollars. If anybody has an idea for that, uh, let me know. And if anybody has any other accessories that would be beneficial to somebody in the situation, um, post it in the uh, show notes. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Jack, and I'm from Central North Carolina. My question is, how do I keep the deer out of my garden? Uh, I do not live in the city limits. I'm about 25 miles outside of Raleigh. Uh, my neighbors to the left have three quarter lot, uh, acres. I have two and a half. Neighbor to the right is like 40. And behind me is a farm of several hundred acres. I have a vegetable garden that's about 75 by 50. It's partially enclosed with a split rail fence. It's more for looks and separation than anything else. And the deer are raiding my garden at night, eating the cantaloupes, watermelons, tomatoes, etc. I have a dog, but she's reached the age where she doesn't care, doesn't have the energy to bother them anymore. So I need a way to keep them out. I'm considering an electric fence, and I was wondering if you have any recommendations for brands, how many strands of wire, and how high to put it, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, thanks, Jack. Appreciate all you do. Bye. Oh, this is easy. And the beautiful thing is that fence that you have that's really more for decoration than anything else gives you the infrastructure to make it easy. Get yourself a fence charger. And some, um, some fencing wire and some standoffs and run a single strand of electric fence wire around that whole garden of yours and get yourself a, uh, you, you go down to like tractor supply or whatever they have in your area and they make these things that are kind of spring loaded for your gate on that fence if you have a gate or if it's just like an open walkthrough area where you can reach and kind of turn them off. And one, I mean, one of the easiest things that you can do with electric fencing is a lot of times you can get extension cords that have an on-off switch built in them. As long as you can find some place to shelter your charger, because you really don't want that, they'll, they'll, they'll handle being out in the, the weather, but you're better off with even just kind of a little, like, you can look like a fake birdhouse or something. And then your connection to that, 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 uh, electric, uh, extension cord is in there, and you have an on-off switch, that way you just don't get zapped. You don't get zapped when you're undoing it or whatever, and you just so you just shut it off, and you know it can be off most of the day as long as you remember to turn it on at night. Hell, you can put on a timer. You can put on a timer where it's on, you know, from like sundown to sun up. In fact, they make timers that pretty much come on when the sun goes down and go off when the sun comes up all by themselves, because uh, that's that's when the deer are hitting you at night. And I trust me, from Arkansas, I know. And if you do that, you'll probably solve your problem. Now, deer can still jump. So that puts you with running a second wire higher, and a lower one wouldn't be the worst idea in the world, but you're probably not getting deer crawling underneath there. 
or a very simple solution. All you need the deer to think is, this place is bad. I don't like this place. This place is not for deer. right? This is a bad place for deers to be, and the deers need to go away. This is so simple. Get yourself some aluminum foil. And about every five feet on that wire, bend a piece of aluminum foil, a strip, a couple inches wide and a few inches long, onto that wire. And onto all of those bits of aluminum foil, smear good old-fashioned creamy peanut butter. Deer love the smell of peanut butter, and they like to lick it. So what happens is old Bambi comes walking along, he's ready to raid the garden again, and there's something weird kind of hanging there, and he's a little apprehensive. And he gives it a sniff with that amazing white tail nose and goes, Ooh, that smells good. And he kind of sneaks up on it and looks around wondering what the hell's different, because deer don't like different. And he says, Ooh. And that little deer tongue comes out and it makes contact with that peanut butter, which is making damn good contact with that aluminum foil, which is making exceptional contact with that electric fencing wire hooked up. And I would recommend a minimum, a minimum, of a 25-mile charger, which will cost you under 100 bucks, because your lighter chargers just don't get it done, and a whole ass load of about 9,000 volts blows right through Bambi's tongue into his skull. Now, it doesn't kill him, but it hurts. He, Trust me, I know exactly what it looks like. They go up in the air like a horse on their front legs, up in the air, except they usually fall over on their back. They roll over and they run away. And they don't come back. And it'll take a little while for all the Bambies and Bambettes come by and lick the fence. But once they do, your problems are solved. Because they'll associate that with bad things. And any deer hunter will tell you, like, anything that puts a deer off a place ruins it. Like, anything that just raises their hackles, this is dangerous. Well, if you want to convince a creature that something's dangerous, put 9,000 volts of electricity through his tongue till he feels it pucker his butthole, and he will determine, I don't like that. Trust me. I want you to think about when you were a kid, and somebody actually talked you into licking the top of a 9-volt battery. Now I want you to imagine that it's a great big Stephen Harris golf cart battery. That's kind of what it's like. It works. It's effective. Your only other real choice is get yourself a new dog and train him up. Stick around the place and hate deer. Because I understand what you're saying. you got an older dog just doesn't give a damn anymore. But if you have a dog that, that, that's going to run deer off, that lives outside at night, if you're into that type of thing, you're not going to have a deer problem. Because they smell them. They know they're there. They bark. They go after them. Deer don't like that either. But nothing works as good as that. Just that one strand of wire all the way around. And... Uh, just a couple times, and it, it, they'll, they'll train to it to where even if it doesn't work, once like something gets up on it and shorts it out, they'll come back. Because they, like, this is the interesting thing. Like, so you can take cattle and you train them to electric tape, or you take pigs and you, you train them to electric wires. And once they've been zapped a few times, you can shut the power off, and they generally don't test it. Because I want you to think about, generally, if you're a person that's ever been shocked by, a, and I'm not talking about these little piddly-wink, one-mile, staticky-zappy things. I'm talking a good, solid, intermittent, 25-mole-or-more box. If you've ever been popped with one of those, do you know why people use fence testers or the good old-fashioned screwdriver to the ground, right? Um, 
Because you don't test them by touching them to see if they're on. Well, critters are smart. They don't test them that way anymore either. Let's uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name is Mark from uh, northern Indiana. I have a question. There was a large uh, mulch plant here that caught on fire. They still have some of the damaged mulch uh, on site and stuff. I don't know if they're going to sell it or if they're going to... Uh, um, rehab it or you know, just dispose of it or what they're going to do. And I was just wondering, is that possible to still use as uh, sheet mulch for uh, gardening beds and stuff like that? Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Bye. Mark, it seems to me like you might be planning on going on down there and trying to make them boys a deal they can't refuse for that burned-up mulch. And it may or may not be a good thing. Let's talk about what you got there. So if mulch caught on fire, you probably have a mixture of something you would still say is mulch, uh, wood ash, and somewhat some bit of charcoal. That would actually be a fantastic fertilizer. Let's, let's talk about what we got there. Let's talk about the wood ash. Wood ash is a great source of potassium and calcium. The negative, if there is one, is that it's generally a fairly high pH, and it's like liming your soil. It's going to raise your soil's pH. And... Because of this, in a lot of places that have acidic soils that also like having more calcium and more potassium, uh, wood ash obtained from various industrial sources is spread on farmers' fields every year, just as a fertility aid. Um, if you have a really high soil pH already, it won't help things. But it probably actually won't hurt that much. If you have a high native soil pH, you probably ain't going to raise it much anyway. Uh, but I wouldn't go overboard with it. I wouldn't use it as straight-up mulch because you're going to be applying at a, 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 a quantity that's a bit too high. But a scatter, like a scatter mulch across an entire piece of property, probably do wonderful things for the fertility. The other thing you got in there is some, you know, probably some wood that didn't burn. There's probably probably didn't all burn to a giant ash pile, uh, and that would just be like any you know piece of organic matter. And then some of it's probably charred and burnt to the point where it's somewhat charcoaly. And, and that is a great soil amendment as well. It applies tilth and lightness to soil. Uh, if it actually has any true charcoal going on, charcoal has these little, like if you examine charcoal under a microscope, it looks like, you know, a, um, a lava rock on steroids. All these little pathways and apartments and things for microbes to live in. And it is considered, you know, there's people that, that you know, make a living built, making biochar for amending soil. So it's probably not bad, but what I wouldn't do is go out and get it for a song and then sheet mulch a garden with it. I think you'd be going too much and uh, a caution with ash in the wood ash in the first place. When it's spread out, you know, and, and, and thinned out and mixed in with other things, it's fine. If you get a real thick layer of wood ash, and it rains, and sooner or later it always rains, right? what do you think comes out the bottom? That would be lye. Yeah, like the chemical lye, like they use in soap making, and like you know, burns you, and they use it in like Drano. And yeah, that's how you get lye. You get a great thick layer of wood ash, you pour water through it, and a certain amount that comes out produces lye. Extremely alkaline, right? So... You don't want to concentrate large amounts of wood ash in any location anyway because it's like a lie lens, I guess you'd say that. Now, this does not mean have any apprehension about using it. Like I said, it's used in agriculture all the time, conventional, it's used in organic. This has been used for thousands of years. Men have spread ashes on the fields because even before they knew why, they knew it made the stuff grow better. 
when I'm using my charcoal grill or my wood smoker or whatever, when I get to a point where I need to clean everything out, I just go out and just spread it thinly out all over the place on my yard because I know it's good for it. So I'm not putting it off. I'm just saying, let's not build a pile of ashes anywhere. It's not a good idea. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Aaron in Arkansas. I just wanted to share with you a little tip. Um, you may have even talked about this before, but in case you hadn't, um, with the battery power backup um, blocks that people are using for phones a lot nowadays, what I've found works really well and just kind of makes it a no-brainer is a lot of newer cars have a USB port, which makes this really easy. Even if you don't, you can use a 12-volt adapter to USB. Um, I basically just keep a 20, I can't even remember what it is now, 18,000 milliamp, maybe something like that, um, power brick in the little center console of my vehicle. Um, that's always plugged in directly to the USB port of that vehicle. And then any chargers that my wife is using or I'm using in the vehicle plug into the ports on the brick. So basically that brick, the power brick, is always charged, always topped off in case of some sort of urgent situation where you just need to be able to grab something to go that's got a full charge to it. You don't even have to think about it. They auto mine at least the model um, auto powers off after so long of not using any uh, delivering any power um, once it's fully charged. Um, so it works really well. I you know I have one in my wife's sedan, and then in my pickup truck where logistically it just wasn't easy to put it somewhere. I put some industrial velcro tape on it, stuck it to the side of the center console. And then my actual phone charger in my car, I just plug straight into the brick, so it's always there and topped off. So, anyway, if it's useful, share it. Uh, if not, thanks anyway. Take care. Bye. Um, I think in general this is a fine idea, okay? I, I really do. Um, and most of the, the good uh, power banks, power boxes, power blocks, power bricks, whatever you want to call them, uh, backup power solutions for cell phones and other mobile devices do have intelligence built in that prevents overcharging. So instead of having a smart charger, you have a smart device that does the work of a smart charger. And the reason that's important for those that may not know is if you take a like a, a non-computer controlled charger and hook it up to a battery that also has no intelligence built into it, what will happen is it will overcharge and overcharge the battery and eventually ruin it. So that's, that's not a concern that I have that you're going to overcharge one of these devices if you're using a good one. Again, the Anker devices, A-N-K-E-R, that I recommend certainly have a lot of intelligence built into them, including that, which is one of the many reasons I recommend them. My concern is, in the end, it is a battery. And batteries hate certain things. They don't like to be wet. They don't like to be very, very cold. And they definitely don't like to be very, very hot. Car interiors are pretty hot. It's probably not damaging the battery reserve. It's probably not. I mean, I don't really know. I would suggest as a fail-safe that, you know, over a weekend, yank it out of the car and, and you know, let your, you know, let's say Friday, use your phone all day, don't plug it in, Right? When you come home Friday night, take the charger out of the car for the weekend, only charge your phone and your spouse's phone with the backup charger 
for the weekend and see how it does. And maybe make a protocol or a, proce a procedure, right, a procedure, uh, once every six months you test them. Just like if you carry mace or pepper spray or whatever, every once in a while you should give it a test spray. And if it has anything lacking what it should have, you throw it out and replace it. And, and I think that's anything that's battery-based. We need to be doing the same thing with. So I would give it a drain. And I think it's good to occasionally drain down a battery pack anyway. Not all the way to zero, honestly, but you know, drain it down to you know, 10, 15, 20% and charge it back up. Now, there's a certain number of times a unit like that can be charged and discharged in its life expectancy. But if you did it once every two months, it probably wouldn't hurt anything. And that actually might be what I would do. You have two, one in each car. Then, like, the first, like you, you got to set something that's easy to remember. You know, the first weekend of every month, we use one of the packs over the weekend. Um, just to stay, you know, if nothing else, to stay apprised of its performance. You know, with the ones I have, the big thing is since they do get used, if you start to have a performance issue, you know it. The issue with just doing what you're doing, while it's like always keeping it topped up, if you have a performance issue, you won't know you have it until you're relying on it. So putting some use into the procedure. So that when the protocol is, remember, procedures are what we do day to day. Protocols are what we implement when something goes wrong with day to day activities. And so when you go to implement the protocol of I'm now using the backup power because I need it, the procedure has created the fail-safe so that you know you can rely on it. That's about the only addition. Otherwise, I think it's a fine idea. Uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Ellie in Northern California, where it's currently 110 degrees and um, normal weather for this area for the summer. I've currently moved into a home on five acres, And I usually just deal with vegetables, and now I'm having to deal with apple trees, pear trees, nectarine trees, walnut trees. Now, these are all probably 30 years old, and they're absolutely beautiful, but I'm afraid that I'm overwatering them. And when I go online to try and figure out, you know, how much water they should have, I'm told my tree will tell me, well, you know what, it's not going to tell me anything because it can't speak. And if you don't give me identifying reasons um, for it to need water or not, then the Internet is absolutely no help. Um, so I'm just in a situation here trying to get it figured out. Um, I don't, I'm not sure they need as much water as I'm being told. I have an apple tree um, turning with yellow leaves and dropping. The fruit on the trees are good. They're nice and big. So maybe it's just the heat. Um, I appreciate any help you can give me at this point. And it seems like they were watering these trees at the root, which I'm around the base of the tree, not the root. Excuse me. And I'm not sure that's correct either. Thank you for any help, and have a wonderful day. Okay, well, I, I can understand what you're saying there. It, it, it doesn't do a lot of good. Um, should be told that ask the tree when it needs water if you don't get told what the tree's language is. But it actually is pretty simple. Um, a tree that needs water will begin to look a little sad, I guess is the best way that I can put it. I pretty much watch my trees, and until I see some level of kind of the, the leaves looking a little bit wilty, I don't get any water at all. Now, your climate's hot, 
<laughs> so is mine. You, you're like, it's 110. You're like, oh, you're 8 degrees warmer than me. 102, right? And there's a difference between 102 and 110, trust me. I know, because I've been to 110, too. Um, but you're a more dry climate. Um, we've actually had a fairly wet year this year, and I've still had to do some watering. But I pretty much look at a tree, and if it's not looking like it's suffering, it doesn't get watered. Can you overwater them? Yeah. And one of the problems with under, under overwatering a tree in really hot, dry climates is it, ex, it, it accelerates their transpiration, which is basically a tree sweating. Since there's more water to pull up, they pull it up and they sweat it off faster, and that can create its own wiltiness. Now, these trees are 35, 40 years old. Um, that means they're very well established, and I wouldn't worry too much. If you can still get a hold of the old homeowner and ask them, well, what did you do? What was your watering procedure? They might be able to let you know, and that would help. But that's that's what I would do is I would watch them. I would also say you have trees with different moisture requirements there. You know, a peach or an apricot tree is pretty drought tolerant, honestly. But it's going to probably actually be, believe it or not, less drought tolerant than an apple. Apples actually like dry climates. California is actually a great place to grow apples, even though we don't think of it that way. Uh, a lot of the diseases apples get in eastern climates, they just don't get in climates like California, or they do a lot better on dealing with them. So I'd watch the trees for kind of the wilty look to them. And then I will tell you the other thing. Some of the trees you have probably can live to be 100 years. Some trees like apricots and peaches, especially on the type of rootstock they're on or what have you, um... Some of them, you might think you're, you're doing something wrong. They may get close to the end of their life cycle. I mean, 50 years for anything on like a dwarfing of any kind rootstock is kind of exceeding its, its anticipated productive life. That doesn't mean it can't live longer, but it, it, it can kind of get in there. Now, the thing is, if they're 35, 40 years old, it's a good probability that they all might, if they're big trees, they might all be on either full size Or, you know, semi-dwarfing that's almost full-size rootstock. And then you've got trees that live 100 years or more. They might outlive you and me. Uh, so good pruning. If you're not familiar with pruning, you know, you probably want to talk to a local arborist. Uh, maybe the, maybe pay them to do the, 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 the spring pruning for you if it needs to be done. And pay attention to what they do and why they do it. Tell them, hey, I'll even give you a little more if you'll make it a class. So that you can do it for yourself in the future. But on watering... What they mean is when the tree looks like it needs water, it needs water. If it looks perfectly fine, don't give it water. You know, don't give it water. As far as where to water, um, you want to water at the roots, but the roots are not the trunk. It's better that the trunk areas stay relatively dry, especially in a larger established tree. You stand under that tree and look up, and you see how far out those branches go. Those roots go out about that far or a little bit further. So if you were watering with drip around a tree, I would suggest a drip line encircling the tree about halfway out to the drip line from the trunk to the edge of the drip line uh, would be where I would go, or maybe even two rings, one about one-third of the way out and one about two-thirds of the way out uh, in the entire diameter of that tree if you're going to run drip, which would be a really effective way to, to, to irrigate in a climate like the one that you're in. Where when you put a bunch of trees in the beginning, they're just little bitty ones, you put a little emitter right next to each tree because the roots are right there. Getting that water out. Now, here's another big thing. 
I don't know who decided that trees needed to be planted in mulch volcanoes, but whoever they are, they should be slapped in the face repeatedly because they've probably killed more trees than anything else. I'm a big believer in mulch around trees. And the thickest part of your mulch, remember I talked about the drip line, should be out at that drip line. And the mulch should actually get thinner as it comes into your tree. And with a young tree, maybe six-inch circle around the trunk, should have no mulch at all, bare dirt. And with a big tree, probably a foot circumference all the way on that tree could be mostly bare dirt. The mulch can mulch in all of that root matter and keep it nice and cool and moist, right? And, and provide nutrient and whatnot. But it, it really shouldn't be up against the trunk and across the trunks to rot. And the other thing is, and it's probably not an issue, but when you see a tree and it looks like a telephone pole coming out of the ground and none of that root crown is exposed, It makes a lot of sense to expose that root crown. I can't go into that, but if you'll Google sick tree treatment, Howard Garrett, then you can find out all about that. And I think it makes a hell of a lot of sense uh, for us when we're planting trees especially. Let's not, let's not you know, cover those root crowns up. And this can happen even in wild trees or trees that were planted properly, but the soil is actually built up over time. There's times when it makes sense to pull some of the dirt off the roots. You've got to be careful about it in the way that you do it. But I wouldn't do it unless you think the tree really needs some help. Uh, but again, when it comes to watering trees, when that tree looks like it's thirsty, that's what they mean by your tree will tell you. At all other times, leave it the hell alone. It doesn't, you know, it's got a bigger root system than you can imagine. To drive that home, a healthy tree of not all, but most species, if you were to actually extract every bit of root matter out of the ground and compare it to the trunks and stems, it has as much or more root matter as it does above the ground. So when you look at that tree above the ground, you go, holy crap, that's big. There's just as much below the ground in a healthy tree in the right ecosystem anyway. With that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Matt from Tom's River, New Jersey. Quick question for you. My daughter just earned her first $100. What do we do with it? What are your recommendations? So background information, we started the uh, way that you have kids earn chores. We did that where you have to do your chores, and if you don't, then you have to pay someone else to do it. Doing for a couple months now, and she saved up her first $100. I exchanged it for a $100 bill. She wants to know what's the best thing to do. I've made some recommendations from CDs to savings account. But maybe this could be an expert counsel or even your guidance. Uh, any help would be greatly appreciated, and thank you for everything you do. Well, um, I'm going to start out with I, I'm a big believer in something that I've heard Dave Ramsey talk about, and that's kind of the, the different piles of your money or your different boxes for your money, and you have your spending money, you have your saving money, and you have your giving money. And when we get into saving, there's all different levels of investments and stuff like that, and, but that can wait. You don't need to worry about that when you're a little girl working for allowance. But I, I, I kind of bring that up because I hope, and I bet you it's just the case, that um, she's kind of doing some of that, and the, the, the savings is not 100% of the earnings. Because I think if you want to keep a child motivated – with an allowance or a job or any source of income, some of that money has to go buy little girl or little boy things. Or it, 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 I mean, think about, think about if you worked your ass off all the time and all your money did was keep a roof over your head, food on your table, and get saved, and you didn't get to do anything fun with it. 
And some of you are going, well, I'm kind of living that way now. Okay, well, it sucks, doesn't it, right? And when you're a kid, you're supposed to have some level of fun, right? So uh, make sure some of the money is being allocated to go out and go to Jamboree or whatever the hell little girls do, right? Um, go out with their friends. I don't know, right? Make sure some of it's getting used. And a healthy portion is getting saved. And it sounds like if she saved up a hundred bucks in a few months, that sounds like she's doing a good job with her savings. And I am a big fan of of, of giving. And if you're a church-going person, that can be this is the money for church. Or you just keep that in a separate jar, so to speak, for savings. And when you feel we need to help somebody, that's what this money's for. I think inspiring a a giving mentality in your kids is one way to make sure they end up wealthy. The... The stereotypical concept that it's the wealthy people that are greedy on this planet is so ass-backwards on its head, it's no wonder most people are broke. Because they have a negative image of being wealthy. Everybody wants to be wealthy, but everybody thinks the wealthy suck, and therefore you know, we should tax them and take their shit and whatever. And That's, that's not just not the way to, to think. So by, by encouraging both saving and, and, and giving... And it doesn't have to be equal. It doesn't have to be 33% each, right? I mean, it can be save 20% at this age, you know, 10% minimum. But at this age, it should be 20%, 10%, I don't care. And then, you know, the, the giving pile could be half of the saving pile. Because you always have the savings you could dip into to give if you really felt you needed to, right? But something. And then some spending, right? Now, at this age, with not having much as uh, bills in her life, it could be. 50% spending, 25% saving, and 25% giving, whatever. You know, and work that out together. Now, what to do with 100 bucks? As much as I'm for doing things with kids to get them excited, one of the other things I'm big about with kids is when, when it is a, a, a basic um, thing to treat them like adults. So what would I do if you came to me and told me you had 100 bucks to invest? I'd say just hold on to it. And... You could set up a bank account, and maybe it's a good lesson in how pathetic interest rates are. But I don't think at this point in her life it maybe is necessary with this amount of money. I think what I would do is I would be dad, and I would go out and spend my money, and I would buy a real nice small firebox. And I would give her a key, and I would keep a key. And, I mean, I just went on Amazon and found one that I thought would... You know, work for this free shipping on Prime, twenty six bucks. It's made by Century Safe, and it's a relatively small one. And I think you know it would be more than satisfactory to keep a single hundred dollar bill in. But I'm not actually suggesting that you just get it for her to keep cash in. Uh, I think if you have young people that are motivated, like one of the things you should be doing for them is investing in silver with them, whether it's uh, junk silver, U.S. coinage, or something like that. You know birthdays, Christmas, stuff like that, you know, instead of getting them all plastic crap, you know, pick up a silver bar or a silver coin. And since kids like different things, you know, don't always get a silver eagle. Maybe start out with a silver eagle. Then get, like, jam bullion sells what they call shipwreck silver. The silver coins actually have the ship on it that sunk, that the silver was recovered from the bottom of the ocean from, and it was on the, the, the bottom of the ocean for, like, hundreds of years. There's all kinds of cool stuff out there. And it's not really expensive. You know, $25 investments at the most. Silver's like 16 bucks. I don't even know what silver is today. 16 bucks an ounce, 15 bucks an ounce, something like that. So that's another valuable. And then, that, you know, ask her, like, what are some things that you have that are really valuable to you that you wouldn't want to lose if we ever had a fire? 
Maybe some actually printed out pictures. Maybe it's her diary. Maybe, it, I don't know, it's whatever's important to that little girl. And say, this is your little, this is basically your treasure chest to keep things that are most important to you. And one thing that's important to us is money. You know, it's not the most important thing in our life, but it is important. And then build up that savings there. And I would build that savings up to something like a thousand bucks. You might think that's a lot of money for a kid to have. No, but there, here's why. Hear me out. So when you get close to that, maybe it's 500 bucks, you know, but when you get close to that number, so you know what, I think now it's time to look at putting some of this money in the bank. And then you go down and you open up a checking account, not with 100 bucks or a savings account, not with 100 bucks, but with 400 bucks or 800 bucks. And then you take, you know, a little, get probably a savings account, probably a little passbook like they used to have when I was a kid, you know, that you keep track of your money with, even though you can do it online, with the account number and all, put that back in the box. And then keep saving to the cash pile. And then when you get to a certain amount, again, let's make another bank deposit. CDs. If they paid enough interest to make it worth tying your kids' money up, because this is long-term savings, probably for college or things, or when they become a teenager, getting their first you know, car or paying first insurance, something like that, I'd say do it. But I just, you know... You have no idea what could go on in your life or her life, and, and, and she might decide she wants that money, and having it tied up in a way that's really difficult to get out, costs money to get out. I, I just don't think CDs pay enough. Here's what I'm saying. I want to encourage investing in a young person, but I'm sure as hell not going to tell them to do something with their money that I wouldn't do with mine. And I have not found cash uh, or CDs to pay enough money right now to take my cash reserves and put them in CDs. Not even laddered. It's so pathetic that it, I'm, I'm, I'm better off with the cash in liquid state in case an investment opportunity comes along that I want to make. So I wouldn't tell her to do something I wouldn't do with my money. And as far as like larger investments, like you know, kids doing Roth IRAs and stuff like that, I, I think until you have about twenty to thirty thousand dollars saved up, you don't even need to worry about it. And even then, it ain't much. And here's why. You're putting your money at risk. We put our money at risk for a return that's reasonable. If we have $100 and we put it at risk to make 10%, the most we're going to make is 10 bucks. In the time we figured out how to make that 10 bucks in an investment return, we could go out and make $10 10 times and double our money when we're working at this level. So I think just the working for a living to a little bit of a degree, having the different places to put their money, saving the cash, being able to pull it out and count it. Tell her, hey, you know, you might want 520s. It's more fun to count than 1-100. I'm just saying. Small bills are good bills. Just saying, right? Um, but I know a kid must feel good about having 100, right? Um, you know, and, 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 and I would say, like, one of the concerns that a parent might have is that kid might start pulling their own money out and spending it. You know what? On some levels, that's okay. It's her money. You gave it to her, all right? On another level, you don't want them doing something stupid with it. So you might make a little, you know, daddy-daughter game. We're going to sit down and go through your stuff once every couple weeks. Not to stoop on you, because we're going to go through it and see what else might need to go in there. Because if they know that you're going to be going through it, and they want to take the money out, they'll do the right thing. Dad, I want to. Can I? And that's when you get, this is the, God, this is the life lesson. And most parents will screw this up so bad. 
No, that's irresponsible. I can't believe you'd do with that with the money you work so hard for. Oh, dear God. You've given them an income source. You've trusted them to save it. You've given them a vehicle and a mechanism to do it properly. And then what do you do? You shit on their opportunity to learn from it. I would say, well, you know, you worked really, really hard for that. How long does it, does it take you to save that much money up? Let's figure it out. How much money do you save a week? You know, it's this much. Well, gee, that's 15 weeks worth of work. Do you think it's worth 15 weeks worth of work? Because when that money's gone, remember, it's... And that's why I like keeping it in cash. Let's count it out. Let's put it, in a, let's put it in a pile. Let's look at it. Do you really think it's worth that? Yes. Okay. And assume it's not going to a Hannah Montana concert. I'm, I know she's gone and she's that Miley starts. I don't know who kids listen to, right? What's her name? The one that... I don't know. Whatever. Like, assuming it's not something that's happening tomorrow, it's a thing, which is usually what it will be, you say, you know what? I'm glad you feel that way. You've thought about it. Here's what I want you to do. I will absolutely say it's okay for you to do this. I want you to think about it for one week. I want you to think, let's put the money back in the box. Go think about it. Go consider all your options. And if a week from now you want to spend that money... Go ahead, spin it. Nine times out of ten, inside that little head, I worked really hard for this. And unless they really feel it's a value-for-value exchange, and my God, if we taught children that word or that phrase, oh, my God, they'll say, no, no. Or they'll start trying to figure out how to – I still want something that does this. What's going to cost less? What? How can I find – you know, they'll start looking for other angles and avenues. You know, and unless it's something that's a responsibility issue, like I want to buy a cell phone with it. Well, if you don't think they're ready for a cell phone yet, then the money's immaterial. But as long as it's not something dangerous or bad, it's their money. You gave it to them. Let them spend it. Just make them think about it first. And again, you know, one of the things you could do is let's say, let's do this. We're going to pretend you bought it. You know I'm good for it. I'm your dad. I'm going to take this 80 bucks, 100 bucks, 150, whatever it is. I'm going to take it. I want you to go through there and count your money every night without it there. Friday, I'm going to give it back to you. If you want to spend it, you can spend it. But I want you to experience what it's like for that money to be gone after you work so hard for it to see if this is what you really want to buy. Because that reduces in the long-term part of their life in full spending. And even if they then say, Friday, I still want it, and you still think it's a bad idea, unless it's like they're going to buy a bat and hit themselves in the head with it, let them do it. It's not the end of the world. Let them do it. Because either they're going to be happy with the decision or unhappy with the decision. And either way... In the future, as they grow up and leave the home, when they end up in the exact same situation and they got a spouse going, we should just do it. They're going to go, hold on. Hold on. We need to think about this. And I know it drives my, 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 my daughter-in-law crazy. I know my son does this now. We taught him this way, right? Uh, maybe not this exact same method, but we this is exactly what we taught him. We're going to think about this, right? And I know it drives her nuts, but you know what? Cutting that impulse spending mechanism down will probably save the average adult quarter million to a half a million dollars in their lifetime. 
Assume they live to be 80 or 90 years of age. So is letting your kid piss away 80 bucks a, a, a worth a lesson that will teach them to save hundreds of thousand dollars across their lives? Yes, it is. And if you do it that way, where they have to think about it and commit to it before they do it, when it was a bad decision, they'll admit to it. And when they come to you again and want to do it again, and you put them through the same exercise, they'll evaluate it more carefully. And then understand, there may be a point where they say, I want this, I worked for this, I, I saved up for it, I want to buy it. Bless ye and go forth, young person. It's okay. That's life. And boy, if the average American was teaching their children that, we wouldn't be worried about where Social Security is going to be in the year 2055. Because we'd have a bunch of freaking millionaires retiring. Anyway, with that, that does wrap the show up for today. There was a question about drip irrigation and timers and rain barrels. And as I was going through the show notes and the links, um, I, I realized I, I, somehow I, I lost it. And I can't find it. I can't figure out where the heck it is. I just can't find it. So I'm going to go ahead and handle that right now. Quick and briefly. The question was basically the gentleman got a 50 gallon rain barrel. He says the model number, I can't remember it because he liked it, it looked good, and it was affordable. He lives in New Jersey. He's got two 4x4 four four raised beds. And he wants to hook up a drip irrigation system to those rain barrels. And he does have water available uh, as well. So if the rain runs out, that, you know, that he'll still be able to fill the barrel back up. They're also going to be going out of town for two weeks, as well, which is why I'm not going to wait till Monday and work it into that show and go ahead and do it today. Um, so this is what I would recommend. I would recommend for your drip irrigation line uh, that you get a product called Rain by Rainbird, R-A-I-N space B-I-R-D, two words. They make drip irrigation um, emitter tubing. It's also pressure compensating, so it handles all of the pressure adjustments itself. And you can get it with 18-inch um, spacing or 6-inch spacing uh, between the emitters. And I think this is a much better system than buying each little emitter and plugging it in a little tool that punches a hole in the tubing. And it, uh, with, with a 6-inch spacing, you can do anything. And with an 18-inch spacing, you can do most things. Okay? Um, And you can even take uh, some really good uh, heavy-duty waterproof tape and just, if you had a 6-inch emitter uh, distance and you wanted it to be 12, just tape over every other one and there's not that much pressure there and it will not drip then. Um, and then I would use a very simple uh, one-outlet uh, timer from a company called Orbit. And I have a link in the show notes to the Orbit timer that I would recommend. It's actually... The link will take you to a, like a product lookup. Amazon won't let me link directly to the individual one for some retarded reason. Um, so it's the first one listed for $24.88. It's a very easy unit to program. It runs on a battery. So you don't have to have electricity there for this thing to work. And it just has basically a cellar. It opens and closes. My concern, enough pressure to push through the drip. Okay? Um, so I'm not sure you're going to get enough pressure to get through the drip. And that's a little bit concerning to me. So I'm not guaranteeing that this will work. You're going to have to elevate that barrel to get enough um, head pressure to push through the drip. 
Another way to do this then would be to get your stand, and I don't know, man, like if you can kind of get a small piece of this to test it or something, it would be best. I've never run drip off something as small as a rain barrel. I've run it off of IBCs, but then you're getting head pressure from just the height, but you're also getting volumetric pressure. And I ran it off of three 300-gallon IBCs, so that's 900 gallons, okay? What would probably work is you get the plastic tubing I said not to get, where you punch a hole in it, and then you, you plug the emitter in, and then the emitter applies the drip. You get that plastic tubing, and the way you close the ends of it is you just like bend it over, and there's a little pinch thing that goes on it. Okay, So you lay that out, you put your T's in it and everything, and then just poke holes for drip emitters. And since you're running rainwater, you're not going to have things clogging up on you from hard water or anything like that. And you definitely have some kind of screen, and a rain barrel probably is an integrated screen, that's going to uh, keep stuff from getting in there. But you probably want to put an inline filter as well uh, on the on the the probably the input to your timer, so and making sure it's something easy to clean out. And you can uh, you can just look for uh, an inline filter to go with this orbit, and you'll be able to find one. Or you can, honestly, you can go by like Home Depot or Lowe's and tell them that's what you're looking for, and they'll sell you a a timer with the the uh, filter in it as well. Uh, so I would either use the integrated drip line or I would just use the standard drip line. And, I mean, what you can do then is you can get yourself, like, the smallest drill bit you can get and go ahead and open it so it's got pressure on it and drill the smallest hole you can in it and drill all your holes, see how it drips. And if it's, it needs to be a little faster, you can make them a little bit bigger. I've never done it that way, so I'm not quite sure it's going to work. Um, but those are different things you could try. The other thing that I think definitely would work is to just run half-inch PVC, because they're only 4x4 four four beds. So just run half-inch PVC and drill small holes in the PVC pipe, and then you're going to definitely get flow through. However, this is what I'm going to tell you. You have to play with the timer to see how long to leave this thing on to get enough and not take too much. A 50-gallon rain barrel is not going to provide you all the irrigation you need for two 4x4 four four beds. It's insufficient in quantity. So the other thing I would recommend is, and you can do this with like a Flowmaster valve for a toilet, and and like set it into a bucket full of like a small bucket, like a one gallon pail full of like gravel, and set that in the bottom of your rain barrel, and then set your Flowmaster to a height where it will let water flow whenever the barrel's more than two thirds empty, so one third height, and then plumb in a hose to that. And when your rain barrel goes below that level, your your garden hose will just keep it filled to that one-third level and leave basically like 30 gallons available for rainwater catchment, especially if you're going to be going away for a couple weeks. Um, I'm, I'm going to tell you now, though, I'm not a fan of rain barrels, 50-gallon rain barrels. I mean, you're so under capacity um, that it, it worries me that it's more of a fad than a function. Again, I'm, I'm a big believer in IBCs for this activity. Uh, you can paint them black, and when you do that, they won't get all nasty and algae uh, funk up on you. And, you know, three of those, you're talking almost 1,000 gallons. Actually, you're, yeah, if you 330-gallon ones, you're talking 990 gallons of water. Now you got some. Now you got some. And one good rain, they'll all fill up off of just a half of most roofs. Uh, but I wouldn't get rid of it or anything. I, I would try to make it work. But you just might want to plan long term in buying a second or a third. And I would definitely put this on a platform. 
elevate it a couple feet off of the ground. It'll make it easier to work on, and it'll give you a little bit more head pressure and give you a little bit more reliability with your drip. But again, since I've never used such a small container to do drip, I'm going to say my first choice would be the, 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 the Rainbird lines with the emitters integrated into them. And for regular drip irrigation, that's what I prefer. It, they're just fantastic. Uh, and like I said, you can use waterproof tape to uh, basically clog every other emitter on the, on the six-inch spacing if you want them one foot. Or you can use like a, a, a epoxy, a putty epoxy, and just push a piece of putty epoxy on them. It, it'll last. You know, they clog easy enough. It, it'll, it'll last. If you use a tape, though, if you ever decide you want to let it out, you can let it out. Or, again, I think maybe one one half inch PVC pipe, you know, just with the ends capped and all. Probably dry fitted together. And uh, I, I think you can, you know, drill like a, again, whatever the smallest drill bit you can get is as your emitter. It, it's probably going to be the best solution with such a small um, reserve of water. But definitely put a float valve in that sucker because I don't think 50 gallons is going to get you through two weeks of uh, watering in midsummer. And if you get lucky enough to get rain during that time, great. But you... Plan for the worst and hope for the best, just like we always say. Okay, with that knocked out, let's uh, remind you guys, if you want to help support the Survival Podcast, one of the ways you can do that is do your online shopping through tspaz.com. You just go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop online. And from there, when you shop online, you can help us out. You can go over there and check out the Amazon deals of the day. You can check out our Amazon reviews. And as long as you're shopping through tspaz.com, you are supporting Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Uh, and a big announcement today, big announcement as far as I'm concerned anyway, uh, though the majority of the audience probably won't care, a significant portion may care. Uh, I've had a lot of emails, hey, like if, I, if we shop T-SPAS and we're from Canada or the UK, do you get credit for that? And up till today, the answer has been no. Um, there's a new program out that allows us to get credit for people that shop out of uh, Canada or the UK. So... Anywhere, like Australia, the rest of the European Union, South America, we still don't get credit for. But those of you from Canada and UK, if you want to support us by shopping T-SPAS, you can do that from now on. And again, you'll see our, our uh, item of review uh, links there as well. Where you can see the items that we review every day uh, for T-SPAS on Amazon. Today's an encore item. Uh, it's, you reviewed it about a year ago. Uh, it's for you mead makers and wine makers out there. I have become... Enamored with making meat. I love making meat, especially small batch meat. And in my quest last year to like refine it to the most foolproof, most basic, most bulletproof things that we could do, I ended up playing around with a lot of things, including doing things that people said, ah, that won't work or that doesn't matter. And one was actually using two strains of yeast when I pitched yeast in my meat. Those two strains of yeast are Red Star Cuvee, which is spelled C-U-V-E-E, -E, but it's pronounced Cuvee and Red Star Pastor Blanc. And those two are in my review for item of the day today. They're a dry yeast. You can buy them in 10 packs. very, very affordable. And when I make a gallon of uh, mead, if I'm making one gallon, I put a packet of each in there, and it's two bucks. To make a gallon of mead, come on. If I'm making two gallons that day, that's plenty more yeast than you need, I will put a half a packet in each for one full packet. That's plenty, because one packet makes five gallons. But I don't try to save it. I just don't think it's worth risking contamination for after you've opened it. Um, but I love this stuff. Now, one of the most important things in my reviews, though, because it's I, I got burned by this in the beginning because I was in a hurry and didn't pay attention. Since I started doing these reviews, a lot of times the stuff that I review sells very well, and other Amazon sellers pay attention to what's selling. And there is Red Star uh, Pastor Blanc, and there is... Um, Pastor Champ, 
uh, Pastor Champagne that's a white champagne yeast, okay? And what some of the sellers have done is listed their item as Pasteur Blanc Champagne Yeast. Technically, it's accurate because Blanc means white in French, but there is no product that Red Star makes that says Pasteur Blanc Champagne Yeast. It says Pasteur Champagne on the label. And if you order a 10-pack of Pasteur Champagne Yeast, you will not get the amazing results you get when you combine the Cuvée and the Pasteur Blanc. You just won't. It won't not work. It won't be bad. It just won't be this thing that I found through a lot of experimentation. And I know because they got me once. So make sure when you buy, if you want to buy the Cuvée and the Blanc, that you're in fact buying the Pasteur Blanc. If you read my review, it'll tell you exactly how to make sure that happens. Plus there's links so you can go straight to the product and you know what you're looking for. Anyway, again, you can help us out anytime by shopping online through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. And yes, that now includes those of you in Canada and the United Kingdom. Um, that brings us to our YouTube channel of the day. Um, this is a cool one, and it's, it's why I love doing this show. Uh, this is a, a channel with 890,000 subscribers. Never heard of them, but I got, I got ducks named after them, right? And I wouldn't know about it if it weren't for this listener. Uh, the channel's called Brothers Green Eats. Brothers Green Eats. And the reason I say I have ducks named after them, I have, I have two Rowans. Uh, Rowans look like big mallards, and I call them the Brothers Green. So I have the Brothers Green running around outside, you know, playing in kiddie pools. And then we have the Brothers Green cooking on YouTube channel. I haven't lo watched a lot of their videos yet, but I'm going to play their kind of intro channel featured video for you and let you hear it. It'll lack a little bit without the video, but I think you'll get the point. I'll come back and wrap the show up, and I'll tell you, they get me right off the bat here. About ten years ago, we started watching cooking shows. But now they kind of suck. That's why we made our own. <laughs> uh -oh. Here at Brothers Green, we focus on a few things. Good vibes, cheap eats, and delicious times. If you're a little nervous about getting in the kitchen, you've come to the perfect place. Best pizza ever. You don't have to be some fancy master chef to blow people's goddamn minds with food. With a little time, a little focus, some dancing, some shopping, and a couple of mishaps here and there, you can whip up fantastic dishes that'll make you feel better than takeout because you're having a fun time making them. We make that funky food that tastes so good like you knew we would because we're brothers Quit your bitchin' and get in the kitchen and head over to the Brothers Green. Uh -oh. ...me with, right? About ten years ago, we started watching cooking shows, but now most of them kind of suck, and they do. I am tired of this. Every cooking show now is a, a competition. Uh, or cooks versus cons, or you know, some asshole chef running into a restaurant that sucks and screaming at everybody to fix it or whatever. I like cooking shows where they say, "Hey, look, we're gonna cook this shit, and this is how you cook it." Like that's like, yo, know, I, I, the, the people I like are like Bobby Flay, who's okay. You know, he's not the best, but he's he's okay. Uh, and uh, Guy Fieri, uh, man, I, I love him. Guy Guy Fieri, Fieri. Whatever the hell. You know who I mean. The guy with the you know, flames and all and the amazing outdoor kitchen stuff like that. I like placing you know, maybe they bring a friend in and they talk about stuff and they, they, they cook. They actually freaking cook. 
Uh, and that seems like what these guys do, and they have some fun with it. And a lot of different things. And not getting too serious about yourself. So I think it's a cool channel. It's a listener-suggested channel. And again, I'm going in order of channels suggested, and there's a lot of them. So if you suggest one, it'll probably get on the air, but it'll be a while. Just send an email to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. TSPC YouTube in the subject line. Give me a link to the channel. One sentence about it is all I need. And I'll take a look at it. Unless it's something terrible, I'll throw it in the queue, and eventually it'll get on the air. But I think this one's kind of cool, so you can check it out again called uh, Brothers Green Cooking. And uh, they seem like some pretty fun guys. That brings us to our song of the day. <clears throat> I actually really wasn't a fan of the song that uh, John Adams selected today, so this is like the first time I've actually declined to play a song that he suggested. Um, and actually, it was actually asked for by a listener or something, but I just went, I, I'm not going to play that. I, I don't think it's going to really resonate with the audience, and so I, I, I called an audible. And when I call audibles, I like to go back to what's comfortable, and I realized since I turned this over to uh, John... Uh, we're going on now whew, 80 episodes, I think, that John has had calm on the, uh, uh, the, the, the control on the, uh, uh, the music. I have not played a Jimmy Buffett song. And you guys know me, I'm a parrot head from way back. And if I have to explain what a parrot head is, don't matter, because just like Harley Davidson, you wouldn't understand. Um, but I'll, I think one of the reasons I am is I'm a fan of a lot of the music that Jimmy Buffett does and has done that a lot of people that think they know Buffett and are kind of like okay with him and the Cheeseburger song and the Get Drunk and Screw song and then at Margaritaville, and I, they don't know. They don't know some of the amazing music that Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band have produced over the years. This one, I think, goes back to 74. I believe that's right. Um, it is called Coast of Marseille. Marseille, of course, being France. And this is a song of lost love. This is a song where he, he went away to get over somebody, but by the time he was ready to come back, still wasn't over him because they were that big a person and, and you know an important person and a lost love in his life. And I think all of us have either lost a person like that in a romantic relationship or something in our lives like that or some group of people or something we've had to walk away from. And I think one of the most kind of really heart-touching moments in this song. He said, you know, he's talking about remembering her and a thought crossed his head, do you still think of me? And the answer came and haunted me so that I dared not think it again. The concept that when he thought, I wonder if she's ever sitting like this remembering me, wanting me back. And the answer that came in his heart was, no. I don't want to ask the question anymore. So it's this heart-wrenching tale. The music's amazing. And then for those of you that only know the, the, the party animal, Jimmy Buffett, guy, fat guy in a you know, uh, Hawaiian shirt, spilling beer on people at a concert, screaming and yelling, this will show you some of the depth that this guy has. And again, this song's from 74. I think it's off the album Pencilton Mustache, if I remember correctly. But the harmonica in this is exactly what it's supposed to be. It's beautiful, and it's haunting. So for those that think you know Buffett, that don't, get ready for one of the greatest songs I think that he's ever done. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please participate in the next one like this. Remember, you can just make phone calls, 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK. 
I'll be back tomorrow on Friday with the Expert Counsel Show of the Week. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast to help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I sat there on the coast of Marseille My thoughts came by like went through my hands How good it be to feel you again How good it be to feel that way I still did not get over